Welcome one and welcome all to the podcast. Still unnamed, but don't worry about that. We're still working on that with the department that will not be named for legal reasons. They are a shadow corporation within our company that is responsible for all of our media outlets, and we are forbidden from saying their name out loud, so I will refrain. I would like to start this episode by reading the memo that was sent to me. Let's see, who is this from? This is from, uh, let's see, this is from staff, just in general, just staff. That's nice, no name to go along with it. Um, and it reads thusly. Uh, someone has been stealing all of the snacks from the vending machines and replacing them with small pieces of paper with the names of random employees. Oh, okay. Uh, any information on this would be, uh, welcome. Please inform the staff so we can catch this individual and stop them from doing it. So far, nothing strange has happened. It's just sort of weirding everyone out. Signed, the staff. Okay, well, that's delightful. Just another odd item in a long list of creepy things that happen in this building. I am joined today by Caleb. Say hello, Caleb. Hello. And uh, remind me, what uh, what department in the company do you work in? Well, I work in our uh, research laboratory specializing in how to get humans back into space. <laughs> get humans back into space. What do you mean by that? I mean, we've we've been to the moon. Don't you can't tell me you you believe in conspiracy theories that literally disagree with proven hard facts. Oh, absolutely not. Uh, so, if are we going back to the moon or what's the uh, operation? I mean, here? the moon the moon would just be a, a starting point. Certainly, we'll get back into the moon. But if we've been in space, it's it's been far too many decades. And so, I was tasked within this company to help uh, do some research and initialize the projects for us to get back into space moon sure but we're we're talking let's let's go beyond even just the couple planets that most people learn in school we're going to explore there's far too many sci-fi movies we we know the stuff has got to be real out there somewhere so that's mm. my job interesting well that explains this episode is happening of course in uh in the planetarium which i got to be honest i didn't know the company had a planetarium well, I mean, this this is somewhat of um, oh, it's it's a research that let's just say we're not going to broadcast it to everybody. Mm, there's a lot of gotcha. haters. There's a lot of doubters. Gotcha, gotcha. And honestly, I just I don't need all of that distraction going on. So we keep the planetarium a relatively hush hush in the company. Uh, I actually have a fun little talking point because you're a bit of a writer, and mm -hmm. by a bit I mean you're absolutely a writer. <laughs> I try. Remind me, do you have like a, a personal uh, record for how many words in like a month span that you've done? Oh, no. I, I don't think I would say I have a record. Maybe maybe 10,000 words in a month. That's but, I mean, still this, impressive. Yeah, so this is also factoring. So that's writing my particular um, fantasy sort of right. projects, right? So I mm -hmm. tend to write roughly – I don't know, 2,500 to 3,500 words a week for work. Right, right. So um, I, I probably, as far as typing is concerned, type somewhere between fifteen and 20,000 words. But as far as creative mindset, I, right. I probably do creative writing. I, I probably average more like 3,000 words a month, but I'm pretty certain I've hit 10. 
your poor keyboard, man. <laughs> yeah, well, I use multiple keyboards. I, I did kill a laptop, <laughs> if that counts. Oh, my gosh. Do Okay, do you have any specific keys that always go out first? Because I, since I use my keyboard <laughs> a lot for gaming, my WASD keys and my yes. shift key always yeah, end up no, dying. Undoubtedly, yeah, so in a lot of gaming aspects, shift tends to be stealth or crouch or something like that, so mm -hmm. shift shift can very easily go out, um, <laughs> and definitely, the, yes, the WASD. Um, for me, it's often the space bar. I hit space a lot, um, mm. and then I hit backspace a, a lot, but the way I hit space with my left thumb, pretty much always my left thumb, hmm. um, there, like especially on my work computer, you can see where all the fingerprint oils have left this residue. I've tried cleaning it off with alcohol wipes, and it's just, I've left the mark on the keyboard for my left thumb on the space bar. I mean, between, yeah, me and my brother, we, like, wore grooves into our previous keyboard. Like, oh, yeah. I don't know if that speaks mostly to the poor quality of the keyboard itself or just a testament to the amount that we were using it, but we, we destroyed that poor keyboard. Not after, it wasn't very long. It wasn't long for this world. Going along with writing stuff, because I wanted to get into this a little bit. I had a random thought earlier today, and I wanted to run it by you. I'm not even sure if I have answers to, to this question yet. I wanted to talk about tropes, and yeah. specifically, your favorite and least favorite tropes. Obviously, ah, yes. it doesn't have to be like your number ones, but even yes. if you just mention some that you like that right. you tend to write or tend to avoid. I just wanted to pick your brain about that. Yeah, so, I mean, I guess there's a little bit of a difference, I will say, from what I tend to write versus uh, what I tend to love. Hmm. So, <laughs> I'll, I'll explain this, right? So, I love certain tropes. I don't know how to pull them off through writing, and it amazes me when authors can pull it off so well. Um, so, I'll go with, like, one of my favorites, right? I love the grumpy man-child mentorship bonding. Okay. Um, right? So you get this Mandalorian plus Grogu. Okay. You get this The Witcher Geralt plus Ciri. Um, a little bit in Game of Thrones, you've got um, the Hound plus Arya Stark. Like, there's this motif of... Um, that I, man, it's been in a lot of the Star Wars shows, too. Um, you get this kind of the, like... I mean, not necessarily even grumpy, but they're, like, gruffy. They're, they're typically quieter. World-weary. Um, World-weary. And then along comes a young child. And, okay, Obi-Wan plus Leia and Kenobi. Okay. Um, right? They're, they're tired. They're depressed. They've seen so much in their lives, and they've survived it all. And then something young, innocent, um, in need of protection comes along. They become the protector. So I absolutely love that trope. Like, that's a cream of the crop top five trope for me. I My mind immediately goes to, like, Rocky or Up. E exactly, yes. So that's that's the exact pairing. Actually, I'll be honest, I've not seen Rocky. Um, but I'm familiar with that concept. Certainly Up. Yes, you are on track. That's where my mind goes. I love that pairing. Okay. All right. I, I can respect that. I... For me personally, I mean, Up is probably one of my favorite Pixar films. It doesn't quite beat out Incredibles for me, but I love sure. that dynamic like you're talking about with this older man and then this very young kid where two entirely different ways of viewing the world. You have one one person who is at the end of their life 
and another person who is still just so full of life that they sort of bounce off each other where I think is Carl Fredrickson, the old man is sort of trying to ground this kid, but the kid is trying to pull this old man out of his, I guess his like apathy and Mm -hmm. his uh, sedentary lifestyle. And this sort of makes them both better. You know what I mean? Yes. Yes. So that is commonly found throughout literature and definitely one of my go-tos. If I see that that is present, I'm, I'm down for it. As far as, like, tropes that, not necessarily that you wish would just cease to exist altogether, because I feel like there's a definite closeness between tropes that you're tired of and tropes mm-hmm. that are super popular because yeah. they just get done to death. But are there sure. any tropes where you're just like, whenever you start to see a story head that direction, you just sort of roll your eyes and you're like, well, I know exactly where this is going. Right. Um, yes. So let me let me highlight this through the way, again, through what I love, which is why I dislike these other tropes. Um, and what I am working on through my own personal fantasy project, um, I love friends to lovers. Okay. So, right, I, I, I love people who have a relationship, they have a history, maybe they grew up together, maybe they serve in the same uh, careers, and, and they're friends to lovers. I love it. I'm here for it all the time. Mm. What that means, though, is I absolutely despise um, love triangles. Okay. Love triangles are a big no-no in my book. I've seen a couple play out okay, but by and large, they're it is literally a waste of literature to me. You'll read, let's say, a 600-page book, and the female protagonist is in love with two different male protagonists who both love her back. And a third of the book is dedicated to someone who will not get the girl. <laughs> um, and that is just that is a waste of space and timing. And so I dislike that. I particularly dislike the one that literally could never be ever published again, and I would be happy is when the character, male or female, leaves their current love interest to go back to their old high school flame, first love, whatever. Oh, yeah. Oh, it makes me so mad to watch someone (laughs) in a happy relationship, and the writer of the story is like, what if we made their happy life turn miserable because of their own old urges, and let's make their life suck, and then let's make it good again because they found true love that they originally had. Right. I just – I don't like it. It's not for me. I know some people love it. Um, Do you feel like I it know, sort of right? invalidates a lot of the character struggle and character development if it's like, ultimately, I'm just going to take you back to square one? Like, you never should have left yes. this small town. Yes. You never should have left this person. It sort of just, like, invalidates a lot of their life experience. Yes, yeah, so this this is character regression at its finest. That's and a good way the, of putting the reason, it. The reason that I dislike Star Wars The Force Awakens, it's not because it was just a rehash of A New Hope. I can live with that. You know what works. You stuck with the formula. I can respect it. It's not the fact that they use some weird humor. While I, I don't love all the funny lines, Star Wars has been known to have quirky humor. I can get it. I'm, I accept it. What I dislike is they took all of the original characters and just said, let's put them back as if they never grew whatsoever from oh. when we first met them. 
to Han Solo, you were a father, you were a husband. Let's just say you gave up on your wife and your kid, and you decided to go back to smuggling goods. Leia, mm. you were a leader as well as a mother and a wife, and let's just say you know you're just gonna lead. And yeah, um, you're Luke, like a politician you know, again. You, you grew up on a desert planet. Let's just send you into exile. So like you took all these characters and said, let's just pretend all of the growth that has happened just didn't happen after 35 years. Huh. I don't, That's a I don't really like interesting regression. take. Yeah. Yeah. So and, – and this you'll, – you'll see it in, in a lot of places where, yeah, if someone is living a stable life and then they're willing to throw away their stable lives to what existed in the past, it's regression, and I don't like it. No, that's really good because, honestly, it does feel untrue to the characters where any show you watch where a character makes a decision and you as the audience, you as the viewer – are thinking to yourself, well, why in the, on earth would that character make that decision? And you can just right. sort of hear the clacking of the writer's uh, typewriter where you're like, oh, I can just feel the author wrenching them away from what makes sense. And it's like mm. you, you can just sort of feel the author imposing their will on well-developed right. characters that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, and so, like, on, on one level, I understand truly, in reality, people do that, right? So we, we mm -hmm. get this this Bible scripture about a dog returning to its vomit. Right, yep. Right? So there is a reality. Yes, sometimes people do regress. I guess what I particularly dislike is when that is praised. Hmm. Uh, again, so when you leave your current partner to go back to your previous partner, um. And that is praised as the right decision. I don't like that. It um, almost feels like fatalistic as far as romance is. He's like, what yeah. was the point of all of this story and all this struggle and all this everything, all these pages, if it's just this is going to happen, whether the reader wants it to or not, <laughs> whether the character right. wanted it or not. <laughs> right. So, yeah, that's that's probably in my highest of high disliked tropes okay so i have a, another question somewhat writing related and we'll, we'll see how complex it gets as far as because i know that you're big into stories that have dragons in them and i guess not just stories yeah. but just media in general yeah. i'm sort of curious i just had this thought because i i wanted to talk about dragons but then i started thinking about their representation in media right whether it's books or, yeah. or everything and my mind I, I don't know why I've never thought about this, but the way that dragons are portrayed, it's like they're always portrayed in like one of two ways. So I feel like a lot of older media, dragons like in stories are just these wild beasts that kill indiscriminately. They're animals. They're just large yes. lizards that breathe fire. And then at some point along the way, and I don't know who's responsible for this, and this is kind of what I wanted to ask you about, is at some point along the line the dragon becomes more like humans, which I mm -hmm. think makes them more terrifying because mm. now their choices, they're making, it's not just an animal acting on instinct. They can mm -hmm. be greedy. They're, they can be vengeful. They can hold grudges. They hoard gold. It's like once you add a weird layer of understanding to them, I think that makes them infinitely scarier so like my prime example would be like smog when right. 
the I the guys I guess the coalition of wizards are in Rivendell and they're like, well, we have to take care of this smog situation because if smog joins the enemy, if he joins the dark one, it's like he's a free agent. He can make mm. this choice, which is so interesting to me that this creature is so powerful and frightening right. that it has the option to choose which side it's on. And yeah. that in and of itself is scary because it's not so easily controlled. Hmm. Yeah. So I'm not sure exactly where it began. So let's, if we backtrack all the way to Beowulf. I don't know if you read Beowulf, how much you're familiar with it. Beowulf. I've is... read, I, I want to say that I read at least a good portion of it in its original, you know, translation. So it's been a minute and it was pretty, it was not an easy read. I also right. read a graphic novel version of it when I was in like middle school and I loved that. Okay. So if you uh, go back to Beowulf, it's the oldest English poem, epic right. poem, that we've got in existence to our knowledge that has still been preserved on some levels. Um, the dragon there, so this is written, I don't know, somewhere around, I want to say a thousand-ish years ago, uh, maybe 1,500 years ago, but I, I think closer to the 1,000 mark. Um, 1,000 to 1,380, something like that. And uh, the dragon in there is, as you said, it's just kind of an animal. It's got a territory. And so Beowulf is going to go try to kill the dragon that is harassing this space. Um, he's an animal. You go to Tolkien. Now, Tolkien really did change the whole fantasy landscape because at the time, I just finished a biography, reading a biography on Tolkien. Okay. Um, at the time... There wasn't such a thing as we have of adult science fiction and fantasy. Um, maybe somewhat on a science fiction scale, but even that wasn't like – I mean we're, we're dealing with 1930s into 1950s. And so when he wrote The Hobbit, it was originally designed for children, which if you've read The Hobbit and you've read Lord of the Rings, you can see the tone difference. That's why um, they still recommend Hobbit in like middle school exactly. reading lists, but they're probably yes. not going to assign you the rest of the trilogy. Correct. So he wrote The Hobbit still with children as a primary audience, um, and that is what people expected. Dragons and fantasy was for children. Um, he made a tone shift when he wrote The Lord of the Rings, and he wrote that, I mean, over a process of years and years and years and years and years. And his publishers were like, yeah, I don't, I don't like this. This isn't going to sell for kids. And he just kept pushing of like, but this is the story. And so he definitely began kicking off this trend of adult fantasy. Then you can go to people like Anne McCaffrey. So she wrote the, the Pern universe. Harper Hall of Pern is what I read this year. Um, but her Pern universe is all about these dragons. And that's in the 1970s. So a couple what, years or so, decade plus after The Lord of the Rings is officially published. She begins writing her stories of dragons and people who ride dragons. And dragons, they actually kind of function almost like cats and dogs. They're, hmm. they're humans' best friends, and they talk to them, but you don't necessarily get talking back from the beasts. But the humans are talking to the dragons and communicating. Obviously, we fast forward down the road. You get to things like Aragon, where now you've got a mental link between dragon and rider. And that has now become... Since Aragon and the early 2000s, that has now become much more standard when dragons are in books 
they communicate through some level of mental connection. Yeah, I was just sort of thinking about like, because obviously there's stuff like how to train your dragon. Mm -hmm. My my brain for some reason, I was thinking to myself, I was like, so in my in my own Bible reading right now, I'm in Revelation again. I'm almost yeah. done through a whole read through, and it I just occurred to me, I was like, I wonder what the translation or concept that would have been floating around when John wrote Revelation like what the concept of a dragon even constituted if that makes sense hmm. because sure. that dragon does have sort of its own personality because it represents yes. it's like an obviously since it's apocalyptic it's elevated literature so instead of just a serpent in a garden you have this massive serpent dragon with multiple heads it's like how do you make a snake mm -hmm. worse give it wings give it a bunch of heads make it massive right. like how do you right. make it worse so I was, I was just thinking to myself, I don't know what the actual answer to that would be of, like, what did people – because the actual concept of a dragon, that's more of a medieval, like, medieval concept of, like, I guess maybe that's more where it became popular. But I wonder what the whole mental image of a dragon would have been back when John wrote Revelation. Yeah, so, I mean, let's let's think about sea monsters for a moment. Okay. Um Right, sea monsters were essentially the same concept of dragon. You're talking serpentine-like body, a um, scaly texture, sharp teeth, tail. That's been around for yeah thousands of years. Hmm. Um, you go back to ancient Near Eastern mythology, which is what I'm trying to specialize in some of my own research. Um, so this is Hebrew, this is Canaanite, this is Hittite, this is um, this ancient Near East, Phoenician, um, yeah, you, you go to this, they, they have these creatures. Um, Rahab, um, Rahav, however you want to pronounce her name, is this goddess uh, dragon-like character. Tiamat is, again, a goddess sea monster-like character. But if you were just trying to come up with a generic name, you would probably use the term dragon. It's a water dragon. That's what a lot of these ancient gods were. So, yeah, I mean, it's been around a long time. And even those, these gods and goddesses, these sea monsters, they have a heart and a mind of their own. The ability to speak, like I said, I think that is much more Tolkien and beyond. I'm not sure how many other stories there are of talking dragons. But certainly these creatures, these monsters, these dragons, they have a thought process they are intellectual enough to make decisions. Right, and that's that's just so, like, I just think that's fascinating to me, is that the way that you make a creature scarier is that you make it like a human in the mm -hmm. sense that it's got reasoning behind what it does in, like, this sort of kingly fashion where right. it hoards gold and it, like, pens itself up inside a keep or a cave, like its own domain, and yeah. somehow that's – I mean it's so much worse. It's like combining the wild beasts, just this bestial strength with the cunning and sinister nature of like an evil king. Right. But I mean we, we know what evil people are like, and evil right. people use – they use weapons. They use manipulation. So now let's, let's give those weapons and manipulation in the forms of fire and claws and fangs. Now let's give them all of the, the physical muscle and power, and yeah, that's 
Like, can you imagine Adolf Hitler as a massive 90-foot dragon? Yeah. Like, like that's, yeah, how do we make something scarier? Make it make it an evil human in the form of a dragon body. And I, I think along with its power is a lot of times, even if it's only speaking or communicating, like, tel- telepathically, it's giving it the ability to speak makes it yes. creepier and worse. It It gives such, like power and poison to what it says mm-hmm. and i think it's sort of like that elevated idea of like the the devil of just the serpent it can talk to you and it right. can play on your fears and your insecurities and it can try to to lie to you about what you want and all this stuff and it's such such a powerful uh concept to use for like a, a you can have heroic dragons or evil dragons and i just think it's i like the fact that you can have either or because i think a lot of times Mm -hmm. in media now you can almost have like a hierarchy where there's maybe the figurehead drake who's like the leader of the dragons and then maybe there's like wyverns or something that are like right lesser and they don't have the mental capabilities but you almost have like a figurehead for the dragons who's like the leader and if Mm -hmm. he's good great if he's bad, you better watch out. Yes. Yes, that's definitely on brand. So, I'm going to shift over to something that I saw today. There was one YouTube video that was recommended to me a while ago that I was unfamiliar with, and I'm just curious to see if you have heard of this story. Uh, the man's name, if I get this right, is Anatoly Bergorsky. Okay. Are you familiar with this name? No, name's not ringing the bell. Okay, so I will read to you from this article. It's very fascinating. So are you familiar with uh, Phineas Gage, the guy who had the copper pipe launched through his head that everybody had to learn about in biology class or psychology? If, if I did, I've definitely forgotten that. Okay, that's, that's actually really funny and ironic. It was a case where I think this was pre-lobotomy, but they realized that the physical makeup of the brain could be physically altered or sustained traumatic injury and that that would have an impact on the personality of the person that that would happen to so phineas Mm. gage was like he had like a piece of copper pipe shoot like up under his jaw and behind one of his eyes and exit his head and from that point on he survived but he had a completely different personality and so that's when people Mm. were like Okay, so the physical makeup of the brain, like if certain things get damaged in a certain part of the brain, it has XYZ trickle down effect. So like gotcha. th- that's when they figured out like oh, like if you a part of your brain gets damaged or destroyed, that will change your personality. Mm. And this is a little bit more insane. So I'll read from the article and if you want yes. me to stop at any point just let me know if you have any questions. So Uh, I will read from the article. Particle accelerators are machines that propel charged particles at incredible speeds, generally to collide with other particles. It's highly advisable that the particles the high-speed particles collide with should not be part of your head, as one man learned the hard way. On July 13, 1978, particle physicist Anatoly Bergorsky... 
or sorry, Bugorski, I don't think there's an R in there, uh, was working at his job in the U-70 Synchrotron, which, by the way, is an awesome name, the largest particle accelerator in the Soviet Union. The 36-year-old was inspecting a piece of equipment that had malfunctioned when the accident happened. Unbeknownst to him, several safety mechanisms had also failed, meaning that when he leaned over to get a good look at his task, a proton beam shot through the back of his head at close to the speed of light. Or at least closer to the speed of light than you'd like a proton beam to be traveling at when it shoots clean through your face. At first, he felt no pain. He knew what had happened as he had seen a light, in quotes, brighter than a thousand suns, as well as the gravity of the situation. At this point, he didn't tell a soul and merely completed the day's work before heading home and waited for the inevitable to happen. Absorbing five grays, that's 500 rads of radiation, would usually lead to death. Though he didn't yet know it, he had been hit with between 2,000 to 3,000 grays, which is 200,000 to 300,000 rads. Uh, in the night, his face began to swell beyond recognition, prompting him to visit the doctors the following morning. From there, he was taken to a clinic in Moscow, though largely so that his death could be observed rather than for any expectation that his life could be saved. Next few days, uh, skin peeled off around the entry and exit wounds, showing a clean path burned right through his skin, skull, and brain. Remarkably, he did not die. The brain tissue continued to burn away over the ensuing years, and his face became paralyzed on the left side, where his hearing was also lost. Weirder still, as he aged, the right side of his head showed signs of aging, while the left side did not. Over the next few decades, he experienced seizures, but remained functional. Continued his work as a physicist, and completed a PhD. As far as people who have put their heads into a particle accelerator go, and to be fair, that demographic... That's a demographic of a one. He was pretty lucky. The narrow focus of the beam, though it caused massive damage, likely kept the damage limited to an area of the brain that he could live without. For the decade after this incident, he was unable to tell anyone about it, given the notorious secrecy of the Soviet Union. He survived well beyond the end of the USSR. However, in fact, the man who put his head in a particle accelerator and lived to tell the tale remains alive to this day. Hmm. I've not heard this. So, a man had something at almost the speed of light rocket through his head and lived. Mm-hmm. That's insane to me. I'm, it is. It is. Like, that could have gone so much worse. Yeah, as he expected it to. I mean, yeah. Like, what would your expectation be? Like, he said in the moment, I mean, he didn't feel much pain, but he knew exactly what happened. So, like... And the fact, I, I I thought that this was a relatively recent thing that happened. I didn't know that it was um, in Russia, first of all. But I also didn't know that it took place in the 70s. When I mm. saw this, there was a video, uh, and I kept seeing the thumbnail for it recommended on YouTube. I just assumed that it was somewhat recent because I didn't realize that particle accelerators have been around that long. Mm. Well, I mean, much like the planetarium, certain companies are certainly not going to share their top secret research. No, of course not. That That's one thing. I don't know if I ever if I've talked about this. I don't think I've ever talked about this on the podcast. I watched like a three-hour long video essay on uh, the first chess like computer that beat uh, the chess champion way back mm. when, whose name is escaping me. Mm -hmm. uh, the machine was called Deep Blue. You've probably heard about it. Um, but basically during one of the matchups between deep blue, the chess computer and one of his human opponents, uh, the 
computer made a very strange move and it actually rattled the chess champion's confidence because he was like, uh-oh, is the computer seeing and noticing something that I'm not? Huh. And it was only, like years after the fact that <laughs> the people who created Deep Blue came out and was like, Oh no, that was a mistake. It made it, it was a glitch basically in the system. <laughs> like, but it completely rocked the uh, the other guy's confidence because uh, he thought that the computer was seeing something that he didn't. <laughs> but right. they, after the fact, they were like, "No, we had made some some code changes that morning, and it just made like a really dumb move." Mm. But it that whole thing. Do you do you get into video essay stuff at all? Do you watch video essays? No, I've I've not really gotten into video essays. I, I want to start making them because I find them very interesting. Yeah. I think it it sort of speaks to the same thing like when you're in high school and you have you have to read certain books. It's just mm -hmm. sort of drudgery. But then after you get out of school and you can read whatever the heck you want, that's when I really developed my love of reading was once mm. I was freed up to read what I wanted and the book choices that were made were for me and it wasn't for like an assignment or it wasn't because I was going to have to eventually write a paper on it. Mm -hmm. I feel very much the same about how people my age and, and older have started making video essays, multiple hour-long videos on just a topic that they're passionate about. And I think it just sort of speaks to that same thing of, like, if you're given the option to make an essay on something that you like, more than likely you're going to put more time and effort into it rather than if it was just assigned, and you might not be as passionate about it. And the flexibility of no designated due date. I think mm. that is, is a big boost, right? So I'll do something I love and take the time I want to research. And hey, if I want to take a break and do something else, I can do that. And then I'll go back to this thing I love. Um, yeah, school typically gives you something you don't like, and it gives you a time frame. So yeah, I, I'd say that, that very much echoes what you're saying. When you've got flexibility and passion, that that's the better key. So I went on uh, – there's a couple websites that I found that tell you – Have you, you know how people make these ridiculous lists of like there's a holiday every day? Yes. And <laughs> – I mean, the list is just insane. I mean, even for today, the website that I'm looking at has so many listed as being on on October 20th, which is when oh, this I'm is sure. being recorded. But the first one that I saw that just sort of made me chuckle to myself is Conflict Resolution Day. Oh, good. And I, I love that. But Yeah, I'm sure here... it's inspired by Parks and Recreation. <laughs> exactly. So my, my thing is... Here at this company, every once in a while, I will ask whoever I'm talking to on this podcast to help me make something better, make an improvement, invent something new. Okay. So I wanted to hear from you, like, obviously, around Christmas time, there are certain traditions, spoken and unspoken, that people take part in, whether it's hot chocolate, hanging multicolored lights, or chopping down a tree in a forest and putting it in your house. All these things that, from the outset are pretty hilarious. And if an sure. like an alien landed on our planet and observed our Halloween like traditions that people do or any right. any holiday really. I think it's just sort of funny. So my question is, how can we make conflict resolution day? What can we do to either add some decoration, 
adds something. Like, what do you think should constitute conflict resolution day? Yeah, so the first thing I think about conflict resolution, um, I tend to think of workplace environment. Right, and like right, right. Like a, a training. Um, I think if you participate in conflict resolution day, um, you should be able to uh, sign up online, say that you have uh, completed conflict resolution, and then you will be mailed a certificate testifying to your completion <laughs> of conflict resolution day. So, so it's like I'm not I'm not going through this day for nothing. I'm doing it for a certification. Is it yes, something because that people people love badges? They love certifications. Like so, now you can post this on your wall. Conflict <laughs> resolution day, 2022. And and maybe maybe there's even a flexibility where you can put what you resolved. And you could put oh. finally, you know, drove away deer from bird feeder. Um, oh, <laughs> it, you can list in bullet point form all of the conflicts you resolved on conflict resolution day. I, I love that. I love the whole concept of it's like a an inspection sticker that you have to get updated every year. Yeah, I also year? My, my mind just goes to like in a workplace setting, having just a, a bewigged judge like enter a room like with an old style English judge. Yes. Yes. <laughs> like everybody has to sit down in a conference room and a podium is brought up and it becomes an impromptu courtroom. And basically any qualms any quibbles that there are in the office just get hashed out publicly <laughs> yep doesn't matter if it's small doesn't matter if it's big we're ready to do it all this is the court case this is bobby versus don on eating his cake that was in the company fridge uh -huh. <laughs> if you and, do and, not and again, have a am, lawyer one will be given to you <laughs> i i am sure people like ross from friends would have absolutely loved conflict resolution day of who ate his sandwich i i also just think it would be funny if you got other employees who had to act the parts of other people in a courtroom so you get someone to be the stenographer one person to be the bailiff two people to act as like the defense attorneys yes. <laughs> like the lawyer and like even if you're coming in ice cold it's your first day you don't know what the heck is going on you just see all this court in like equipment being wheeled into the room and people mm -hmm. are like oh boy you picked a good day to show up it's conflict resolution day and yes, just the ceo just just michael scott walking out in a giant white wig in a in a robe pounding a yes. gavel that would be so much fun yes it, it provides a sort of lightness to the work atmosphere and you do get a certificate Mm. Exactly. You get it. You get a. You get a little prize. Who doesn't love that? I mean, isn't uh, that one of these TikTok trends right now? Is like, I need a little treat. Like, this, is, <laughs> this, this is what people want, right? They do something hard, they get a reward. So, right. So it's almost conflict, like get a reward. It, it's a little bit like what we do with my dad with his bad dad jokes. Is that he? We let him store them up for Father's Day. We're like, save it ah. for Father's Day. We know, we see that look in your eye. You just found a stinker. You got to hold on to that one and wait until Father's Day before you're allowed to, <laughs> to give us that specific dad joke. So it's a little bit like nice. that. It's like you can't have you can't have a public issue with someone else's behavior until conflict resolution day where it all just pours forward right. like a torrent. Right. Yes. <laughs> That's amazing. I love that. What's something, have you, have you seen anything on the internet recently that just made you happy, made you smile, or you thought was really cool? I can, hey, if it's on the internet, I can give you things that make me grumpy. Um, 
Man, things that make me smile or that I think are cool. I need to get on the happier side of the internet, it seems. <laughs> it would appear so. Hey, but I'm I'm right there with you, honestly. Like, there are days where I'm just like, I need like a detox, you know? I I think I've I've definitely talked about this with other people before, but pretty much any any creative person, like on Instagram, mm -hmm. what always makes me super happy as an artist is whenever I see someone who like drawing original original characters is like their thing. Like they just love creating characters. I yeah. love it. Absolutely love it when they take two of their OCs and have them together and like i love it when you can have this creative space so like yeah. smash brothers where all these disparate characters can come right. together under the same creative roof for some yeah. reason and i think this sort of i mean it happens it's happening a lot in media anyways with the whole multiverse trend exactly right but this whole idea of sort of bringing everyone together regardless of the rules that it could potentially break just sort of having fun with it. I just love when random characters that just don't belong, just super realistic characters and super mm -hmm. cartoony, wacky characters, right. like inhabiting the same space for a common goal is just so cool to me. Yeah, so that, that prompts two things in my mind. Um, the, the first thing, what, what I love about that is often when you bring things that don't really belong together, um, I like a unique format change. So hmm. what I mean by that is um, there was an episode, I believe it was of Supergirl. Um, so Supergirl, I forget what it originally aired on. It was then bought by a CW. And um, I think it's Supergirl. Is it Superwoman? Whichever it is. I think it's Super. Anyways. Um, so she and The Flash then began doing crossover episodes. Um, that tied into the Arrowverse at the time. This crossover like episodes. Ago. I love crossover yes. episodes. Right, so crossover episodes. But what I particularly love is then when you make it a unique twist. So there was a musical episode because <laughs> both the, the character who plays the Flash, Grant Austin, I think, if the name's coming correctly to my head. That sounds right. Um, and the girl who played uh, Supergirl, Superwoman, um, they were both on Glee together at one time. Oh, okay. And so they said, hey, we've, we've, we've got the talent, and they made a musical episode <laughs> of this show of superheroes, right? So, like, I love that unique twist. Uh, Supernatural did this. I've actually not watched this yet, but where it became a Scooby-Doo episode. <laughs> and so uh, Sam and Dean Winchester have to partner with the Mystery Gang, and it is filmed – in Scooby-Doo cinematography. Oh my um, gosh, that's so good. Right, so like I, I, I love that unique twist. You talk about you know Smash Brothers and these, these characters coming together. I love it when not only are they coming together, but they're coming together in a completely different format. I think hmm. that is so fun. It, I remember there was an episode of the TV series Monk that they hmm. filmed a black and white version and an in color version right because the setup was very film noir the entire episode doesn't really follow that format but they did mm. an entire episode in black and white and it was kind of interesting behind the scenes like before the episode that you can select from the disc there's two different actors that talk about they like sort of make a case for why they like it 
in color or in black and white better. And it's right. sort of interesting where it's like you, you can watch the same thing in a different format and it's the way it's done is just so fascinating because yeah so like as an example i just finished watching through better call saul with my dad and mm -hmm. vince gilligan loves using black and white uh but the thing is is that one of the things that he's known for is his use of color and how he uses color to invoke certain things remind you of certain things or telegraph certain things so even yeah. down to like the filter that he uses over the screen whatever base color is on that filter you can kind of get a sense of either place or which character you're following and mm. so to have him directorially removing a bunch of tools from your tool belt voluntarily going black and right. white for large portions of the show i think is just sort of a way that he can sort of just show off his ability to make something captivating in just mm. black and white so i think this goes to the creative power of saying if you have something good you don't need to rely on all the bells and whistles to to keep it good mm. and i think that's what i love about yes a, a director who can take something that they wouldn't usually do and basically yes i mean and this is you know for um you know, I don't know, wrestlers, athletes, whatever, when it's like, yeah, tie a hand behind my back. Well, why would you do that? Well, I can <laughs> prove to you, I can prove to you, I am still superior, even handicapped. Right, and I think, yeah. Yeah, if, if you can do that as a director and say, you know what, I'm gonna take away some of the flashy technology we have today, or I'm gonna take away the use of color that I'm known for. Um, like I, and you still put out a good product. I, I think that is just, it, it speaks to the creative mind. I just love like practical effects whenever I yeah. see it. it makes me so happy. I'm like, oh, they didn't CGI that. They did that. They actually blew up that room like in right. real life. Like that stuff makes me so happy. It just looks so good. Yeah. Well, uh, I will leave you to your research. I think we're going to wrap this up. I'm still looking for the exit. So in this, this glorious planetarium, if... By any chance, in your sojourns through this infinitely tall building, if you happen to come across an exit, just just let me know. Just uh, drop me a line or something like that. Uh, I, I was going to go get some snacks from the vending machine, but apparently now it's full of names written on paper, and I'm not I really was sure where to take one. I was wondering why I found my name lying on a table. Um, that's a little disturbing to think someone thought I was a snack. Mm, well, then again... Yeah, you may just want to keep your head on a swivel because if someone drew your name, I don't know what that means at all. Mm, no idea. I don't either. You you better watch your back. Yeah, I I try to. I I got lost seventeen times getting here, and I gotta be honest, I don't know how I'm getting out. Well, I mean, I haven't found my way out, so I can't help you too much. Well, if you find anything interesting out in space, uh, let me know. I I will do that a hundred percent. All right. Well, uh, thank you all so much for listening. Uh. Bye.